Amen and amen. All right, so we are on part six, our last session of the series we've been doing uh, called Critical Conversations, where we've been talking about uh, really challenging issues, issues that aren't much spoken of by the church, and trying to get uh, a biblical worldview and a biblical perspective on these topics. So, so what we did for tonight was we uh, asked people to submit questions that they wanted us to address. And, and we got a great response. We got a whole bunch of questions. And, and I would just say this, for those that, that uh, submitted questions, we can only answer just a handful of questions in the next 45 minutes to an hour. But I thought that the, the input that we got from folks was so good. You know, Gabe and I were talking about it. We want to address some of the other questions that came in in some subsequent uh, teaching series in the days ahead. So we're looking to weave some of the, the questions in that we received, good things that that we need to, to speak with clarity on stuff like what's the role of women in, in church and in leadership and, and then different things like uh, uh, what's, you know, what's the church's response to the, the false grace movement that's out there and, and just a variety of things. So we're going to address those things in days ahead. We're going to weave them into messages and, and try to utilize them as a, as a way to speak into, into uh, what people are desiring to understand uh, from the scripture. Uh, But tonight, what I did was I took probably the four hardest questions. This is just because that's how I am. (laughs) So we got the four probably hardest questions, but they all kind of are interlaced. They all relate to one another. And and we're going to work through them piece by piece and, uh, and, and try to get the heart of the Lord on these matters. Now, I need to say this. Before we get into answering any questions... There's a, there is a big answer that we need to make absolutely clear before we work through any nuances of specific questions, and, and that's this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the answer for every question. Yes. The cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, it is the answer for every single question in our hearts in society, and uh, it's it, you know on one side of that you could you could think people would say well well when you talk about the gospel you're only talking about the individual application of the gospel like yes I understand it's the answer for individuals and how they're supposed to see transformation in their hearts but I don't see how it's an answer a broader answer for the whole of society and, and what I would say to you is this if our gospel only only has vertical implications, it's not a full gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus, not only does it transform the heart, it commands us to step into righteous and justice, righteousness and justice, justice in our actions. And so that there is a, a massive horizontal reality to the overflow of the gospel when it's taken root in individuals' hearts. Does that make sense? And so the power of the blood of Jesus, the power of his cross, when an individual comes to Jesus Christ and and they say, listen, I don't want to live my way anymore. I am appealing to you, Jesus, to set me free from sin, to transform me. Jesus Christ, save my life. They come to Jesus with that kind of a heart. The power of God transforms that individual. The Holy Spirit goes into that person's spirit and a miracle takes place. They become born again. 
And when an individual is born again, all of a sudden, there is a different value system and a different revelatory reality working within that individual. Now, when you get born again, your mind doesn't get born again. And your body doesn't get born again. Your spirit gets born again. So what happens is this, you go into a process of having to renew your mind and buffet your body. Not buffet, <laughs> buffet. Means you gotta get it under control of your spirit, right? And so there's a process that we go through of leaning in to the Holy Spirit, studying the word and engaging God in prayer. And what happens is we begin to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's a process called sanctification. And that's why you can meet Christians that are all in different uh, spots along this journey. You know, you meet one Christian and, and, you know, they're saved, but man, they're just fresh. They're just fresh. I, I, you know, I, I kind of enjoy meeting a brand new believer and you go, you go, how are you, how you doing? And they go, beep, I'm doing so good. If I was doing any better, I'd be beeping beep. And you go, amen. <laughs> and not that we want to encourage to, you know, use, uh, uh, you know, filthy language. But what it is, is their mind hasn't been renewed yet. And they haven't gotten their flesh under the authority of the Holy Spirit yet. They're working through that. They're in the process of it. I, I love when a new believer comes to me and, and they say, you know, I was there and I was talking and, and I said this and this and, and, and then I just started feeling bad about it. And I go, well, why'd you feel bad? I don't know. It just felt wrong on the inside to say that word. And, and all of a sudden, I don't like to cuss anymore. And I go, guess what happened to you? They go, what? I go, you got born again. Because you, in your spirit, you don't enjoy sin anymore when you're born again. And that, the Holy Spirit on the inside, he goes, hey, I'm, I'm not for that. I'm not for F-bombs and all the other. So what I need you to do is sanctify your, your language. Let's clean that up. Let's get, your, let's get you a, a princely speech. Let's get you a priestly speech. Let's get you a sanctified holy speech. And that just begins to work in an individual who's truly born again. That process of sanctification takes place. Well, it doesn't stop with just that person beginning to embrace holiness. The love of God is shed abroad in their heart by the Holy Spirit. When you get born again, the love of God is shed in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You have an everlasting well of love on the inside if you will tap down into it and allow it to flow out through you. And therein is the answer that the gospel has, not just in a vertical way, but in a horizontal way. Because if you had an entire people completely under the authority and flowing by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, moving by the power of the love of God, there would be such unity. There would be such togetherness and such camaraderie, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. We would be so in love with one another We wouldn't have all these petty things in our way. We wouldn't have all this unrenewed, unsanctified stuff dividing us. We would have the love of God in Christ answering every issue. Amen. Amen. That's where you needed to say amen. You just missed that one. And so the gospel is the answer. Jesus is the answer. 
okay? In Jesus, Colossians chapter two, verse three says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and Peter said this, that, that um, everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness is multiplied to us in the knowledge of God. And so all the answers are in Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, there really aren't answers to our problems outside of him. And that's why we see such, such a mess in society right now. Because people are looking everywhere they can to try to get answers and they can't find the answer. Because Jesus is the answer. Can I get an amen? All right. So that's what I need you to catch as the banner of how I'm answering these questions. Now, I'm gonna get into some nitty-gritty, into some nuance now, but I need you to understand that the answers all come through the knowledge of Jesus and through the power of the cross. All right, with that in mind, let's start with a nice, easy question. Y'all really took it easy on me, didn't you? (laughs) Not so much. But what's the biblical response to the movement Black Lives Matter? And I think this is an excellent question, and it's a great one for us to start with. And so just right there in A, under Roman number one, I just say it like this. The Bible agrees with the statement, black lives matter, while it stands in direct opposition to key components of the movement, black lives matter. Now, let me uh, explain how the Bible agrees with the statement and then even take it a step or two further. The Bible agrees with that statement that black lives matter because people are valuable to God. Lives are valuable to God. I think so often we get so divided over issues, we forget there's people on the other side of those issues. There's real people with real hearts, with, with with real thoughts, real emotions. And what tends to happen is people get so stirred up, they begin to dehumanize the people on the other side or the people that they disagree with. And they forget that that's an individual, that's a person created the image and likeness of God. That's somebody that God loves. Furthermore, that's somebody that Jesus Christ shed his blood for. That person is of ultimate value because Jesus paid for them with his own blood the highest price there is to pay. And that's how you find out the value and the worth of somebody, what's somebody willing to pay for it. And so black lives matter, absolutely black lives matter, firstly because of the way that God cares about every person and in specific how God cares about black people. Of course black lives matter. Now, on, uh, to take it a step further, some would say, well, that, that answer is insufficient because you're actually missing the point that the whole phrase Black Lives Matter came out of. And, and, and the phrase Black Lives Matter, as it was first coined when a young man, Trayvon Martin, was shot in Florida. And then it got major, major uh, momentum after Michael Brown was shot in, in Ferguson, Missouri. And some of you say, well, you, you're not addressing the worth of black people in the context that Black Lives Matter is given. And, and I would say this, you're exactly right. I gave you a gospel answer. Now let me give you a social answer. Do black lives matter in this context that we have in America today? Absolutely, black lives matter. Absolutely. And now some people that are on the other side of that argument, they go, no, 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 blue lives matter and, and, and white lives matter and all lives matter. And I go, just hold on a second. 
before you tell me about every other kind of life that matters. And let's just take that one statement by itself and consider it for a moment. In our nation, we have a massive history of devaluing and dehumanizing people of color, specifically African-Americans. I mean, crazy stuff. If you go back and read the history, wild stuff all the way up to the 60s, and then the 60s and the civil rights movement brings the manifestation of it all to the surface. Then we get some laws changed. We get some, we get some military help and some police help in there. But just because a law changes, don't you know it doesn't change people's hearts? And we've been on a 50-year journey to just try to get to the place where people see each other as mutually valuable. They see each other as just as valuable as themselves. And so, as a person that's not black, a person that's not a person of color, you need to stop before you answer black lives matter with, well, so do blue lives, just wait. And just, just think about that for a second. Why do people of color why would they be interested and have so much energy and momentum behind a simple phrase, black lives matter? Why does that speak to the heart of an entire generation of people of color? You need to ask yourself that question. And the reason why is because there's been so much devaluing of black lives for so long. Most people don't realize this, but Michael Brown, and, and I'm not talking about the narrative there in, that took place in, in Ferguson, but where Michael Brown was shot, I've been there, I've been on the street corner a couple times, uh, where he was shot is about two miles from where Dred Scott is buried. Now some of you right now, the antenna's going up, you go, Dred Scott, I know that, I know that. Some of you know exactly where I'm going with this. Most of you probably don't. Dred Scott, in the 1850s, was a slave who actually sued his, his owners for freedom on the basis of the fact that he was a man and a citizen and not property. And in what is widely known as the worst decision that the Supreme Court has ever made in a seven to two decision, it was found that Dred Scott wasn't firstly a man, that he was firstly property. And the court ruled in favor of his owners. That was in 1857. Of course, within, within a, you know, a decade, we have... The, the Civil War, we have the 13th and the 14th Amendment, which both render the Dred Scott decision completely overturned. But here's my point, and I'm not talking about the politics of the issue, I'm just talking about the message. In the place where Dred Scott is buried, where it was historically said in our nation, you are not a man first, your property and your life doesn't matter is where the movement Black Lives Matter bloomed. What do I see in that? I'll tell you what I see. I see the hand of the Lord pointing right at a deep wound in our nation. Now here's the thing. 
here's the thing. I'm not saying God is all up into everything that Black Lives Matter, the movement is about. I'm just saying the Lord, in his sovereign ways, he's utilizing it to expose an issue in our nation that we still haven't dealt with, gang. Get this. Okay, you know we've, got, we've had the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation. You know we've had the 13th and 14th Amendment. You know that we had civil rights uh, acts in, in 60, uh, 1960, 4, 5, 6, 7. Here's the thing. Did you know that our nation has never, <laughs> we've never with solidarity in a united way come forward and say, we repent of slavery, we're sorry? See, to me, the racial tension that's alive in our nation right now is still about a wound that's never been addressed. That there hasn't been repentance for one of the gravest sins the earth has ever seen, chattel slavery in the United States of America. And the Lord has put his finger on it. So, do I agree with the statement Black Lives Matter? I absolutely do doesn't mean that I don't think other lives matter, but I do think it's important as one who's of a majority culture in a nation that's made up of majority and minority cultures to be able to affirm and protect and welcome those that are in uh, minority cultures and say, you absolutely do matter. I think that's the responsibility of the majority. Now, in regard to the movement most people don't understand Black Lives Matter, the movement. What they get about Black Lives Matter is what they've seen on TV. They've seen protest marches, and, and they've seen sometimes those things have turned violent, and, and they've seen all this stuff that's happened, and then there's somebody that's got a, 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 a sign that says, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And, and, and I would say most people are actually not educated about what the movement actually is. We've seen major cities, including our own city of Atlanta, have massive, huge marches. We had 10,000 people in Atlanta uh, march with Black Lives Matter last year after the shootings in the summer. And so I just decided just to do a little research and just go on blacklivesmatter.com and just figure out what's the movement about. Maybe I can get on with it. I enjoy the sentiment. I appreciate that. Let me see if this is something I can get into. And when you go to the website, they lay out exactly what they're about. And I won't take a poll of how many have actually gone to the website, but my guess is probably not a lot of us. So let me give you a few statements from the website. And now I'm speaking why the Bible is in direct opposition to Black Lives Matter, the movement. D, I mentioned it right here in, your, in the outline. This is a quote from the website. Black Lives Matter affirms the lives of black, queer, and trans folks and all black lives along the gender spectrum. Now, we addressed in one of our earlier messages, there is no gender spectrum. You're male or you're female, and that's how God made us. And you, get, you don't get to define yourself because the, the, uh, the authority of definition comes from the creator. Amen. 
So I started digging deeper into the website and I found the page that had the values of Black Lives Matter. And, and they have them all just laying out there, right there on the one page together. And I'm reading through some of the values and there's diversity and I go, okay, okay, I can do this. And there's empathy and I go, yeah, I, I can get about that. And, and there's loving engagement, which simply means we're gonna talk through things in a civil and loving and understanding manner. I, okay, I can be about that. And then a couple of the other values. And there's black villages. And I go, whoa, what's black villages? That sounds interesting. And you click it and it gives you the description. And it says, the very first thing says, we are committed to disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. I went, what? And I did, I read it through about five times to get the import of what exactly that whole statement was making. And then I began to realize there's much more going on here than a conversation between civil cultural rights. And so I'm digging into it. And then here's another value. By the way, there is no Western prescribed nuclear family structure. The family structure that we follow is the one that's in the Bible where God made a man and a woman and he said, be fruitful and multiply. And that family structure became the core and the cornerstone of societal structure. You want a society to fall apart? Tear its families apart. Well, Black Lives Matter says that they're committed to disrupting the family structure. I can't get on with that. Can't get on with that. And then it says, we are queer affirming. I went, wow, really? Black Lives Matter, one of their values. This wasn't on page 10. This is like on page two right there. Queer affirming. We are committed to fostering a queer affirming network. Wow. And then right next to it, transgender affirming. In the same kind of a statement, want to foster and, and, and welcome and invite people that are trans people from all different parts and walks of life. And I'm looking at this thing and I realize, oh, I see what you've done. You've co-opted the civil rights message that's there in Black Lives Matter and you've twisted it up with this message of gay affirmation and transgender affirmation. Ah, that's what we call false justice. Because justice is actually a man and his name is Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring true justice. And what happens is when the world gets a, uh, they'll get a bit of truth and they'll, they'll mix it with a bunch of poison and lies. They'll mix that thing together and it's this really, it sounds good on the surface, this, this really good thing. We're gonna get, we're gonna get real, you know, cultural diversity and empathy and loving engagement going as long as we can completely affirm homosexuals and transgender genders and actually just totally disrupt the, the nuclear family structure because we want to, to replace it with a whole different way to think that society should be built. So what you have there is a, a false justice movement. And, and, and I would just say this, you know, when you study Black Lives Matter, you find out there's three women that founded it. Two of the women are very bold um, lesbians. And so they are pushing their agenda strongly through this message of civil rights. And they're trying to join those two messages together. That's false justice. But here's the thing. False justice movements get traction in the earth when there isn't a gospel-centered justice message. 
And so if the church had not, had not been silent on these affairs for so long, there would be no room for a false justice message. And so, man, they hit the timing just perfect. They utilized these, these tragic situations. They pricked a con- the conscience of, of America. Because when you look at Black Lives Matter marches, it's not just black people out there. There's every kind of person, every kind of color, every kind of culture marching together under this banner. And I would bet you 90% of them don't know even what the value system is that they're promoting. Thus, the Bible stands in opposition to Black Lives Matter. So as a movement, I can't get on with that. I can't get on with that. We can't be about that. The church needs to have a, a... clear voice as it relates to to racial unity, racial healing, racial justice, and it's got to be a biblically-based, gospel-centered movement and not something that's twisted up with a bunch of perversion and sin. Can I get amen? amen? So, in G... I mentioned this, that expressing love and compassion and care for one another in the body of Christ is actually commanded... And it's understood as how believers are to live. That's the way that we're supposed to live out the gospel. That's the horizontal aspects of the gospel where we we have compassion and care. And, And the Bible goes on so clearly to say that when one part of the body is rejoicing, we rejoice with it. And when one part of the body is is mourning, we mourn with it. And that's the natural way that believers are supposed to operate in a culture that's experiencing many ripple effects of racial tensions that have been here for a long, long time. And so the church, the way it looks like is this. When there has been these rough situations, these, these shootings and these, these public things that have come out and there's, there's been these firestorms going on in society. As a, as a uh, believer of the majority culture, I reach out to my minority friends and my first text message is, bro, how's it going? What are you thinking? There's three or four men in the nation. I just immediately, I just contact them. How are you? What are you thinking? How do we pray? Let's talk about this. When I was, when I was last summer, when the, the, the shootings happened and then the police officer shootings happened, I was in the Middle East. I was on the phone with Garland Hunt from Dubai talking through the issues because in Christ, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We don't have the option to ignore when one of our brothers or sisters is hurting. Amen. Amen. That's That's not an option for us. We are supposed to jump in with our brothers and sisters, bear their burdens, and we are supposed to be a voice that brings peace in the midst of storms. We're supposed to be uh, anointed with with that same anointing that Jesus had, the Prince of Peace, to be peacemakers. That's creating peace in the middle of crises. We do that by the declaration of the gospel and by manifesting love everywhere we go. Good. You guys did good on that one. You hung right in there. Well, we got a lot of momentum. Let's go with number two now. (laughs) Huh. An equally easy question, 
how should believers respond to the NFL players' protests during the national anthem? By the way, I am joking. These are not easy questions. When I started reading them, I was like, dear Lord, thanks a lot. You guys went for it, but you know what? I'm going to go for it right there with you. Amen. I love you too. All right, so here's what we got. We've got this protest that's happening during national anthems at sports games, uh, football games. And, and I want to just say first and foremost, I think that this issue has been, I mean, over-dramatized by the media in order to stir up people in their sensitivities and in their emotions and to make an extra dollar to increase viewership. I feel like they have hammered this issue over and over and over again. Meanwhile, we've got earthquakes going on in Mexico City, taking the whole city out. We've got tor- uh, hurricanes coming up in the Atlantic, Puerto Rico in a, in a mess. We've got all these other things we're, you know, going on, but we're worried about what's going on at a football game. What are they doing? They're playing us again. They're stirring us up again. I'm not saying it's not an important issue. It does have uh, importance and it does have value. But guys, there is so much more going on. This isn't the only issue out there, but you would think it's the only issue out there. I watched a game today. They wanted to start that game with the national anthem. Bunch of people standing, people locked arms, all this cool stuff. And then they're gonna tell us exactly how many guys were kneeling and who they were. And it's just like, are we really going hard like this at this issue? And the reason that you're doing it is because of the amount of racial tension that's been going on. And so they can seize the moment and increase viewership by staying on an issue that's got people pricked in their emotions. So they're, they're, they're playing us a little bit with it, I believe. I think they're, they're over-dramatizing it. And, and here's the other thing. The media narrative on this subject has been slanted and changed from the original intent of what these protests were. What you see now is when you, when you see a headline about it, you'll see it says something like, players protest national anthem. And the headline is actually completely wrong because none of the players that have been interviewed about why they're protesting and what they're protesting are even protesting the national anthem. They're not protesting the flag. They're not protesting the military. What they're protesting for is they're using that moment in our nation where we, where we honor our nation, we honor our flag. They're using that moment to raise another question. And the question they're trying to raise is, is there fair and equal treatment under the law for people of color? That's always been the issue. Now, you wouldn't know that because everything that's being talked about is how those players are, are standing in protest against America and against the flag, and they're just not. And I've listened to interviews from players, and they say that's the last thing that's on our mind. And so here's what happened. Colin Kaepernick, last year, he began to sit down in the preseason. He began to sit down during the national anthem. He was then addressed, and I was corrected this morning, it's not a Marine, he was addressed by a Green Beret, who was a football player, who was a long snapper, and they had a dialogue about it. And the Green Beret told him, hey man, listen, would you mind changing 
hurting your approach because it looks like you're dishonoring America and dishonoring the flag and dishonoring our military and families that have lost loved ones by sitting there. Would you do something more honoring and take a knee instead? The Green Beret asked Colin Kaepernick to change his approach and Colin Kaepernick Changed. Now, I'm not commenting on Colin Kaepernick's politics or any of his clothing choices or stuff he said in, in other interviews. I, I can't get on with a bunch of that stuff, but the Green Beret asked him to change his approach, and he did. And so he began to take a knee. And so here's the deal. That was last year during the preseason. That was over a year ago. And then different players begin to get in on it with Colin Kaepernick, a little bit here, a little bit there. Well, this year, a handful more players were kind of doing the, the knee during the national anthem. It wasn't a big deal until our beloved president decided at a rally in Alabama to make a comment about it and said that he thinks NFL owners should fire those players. And then he used an expletive to describe those players. When that happened... Now everybody's taking a knee. Because what'd you say about me and my friends? I'll tell you what, (laughs) I'm down here. (laughs) And literally that's how it went. And so because of the rhetoric that came, it supercharged the issue and became this front page deal. Now, most of what we're seeing right now in these uh, take a knee protests It's people supporting the the guys that were originally trying to raise the issue about equal and, 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 and fair treatment under the law. It's people supporting that and standing in solidarity in light of the comments by our president. Most of the folks are doing that. I mean, when now the, the question is, well, why did you take a knee? And they'll, they'll go, well, I'm not what the president said. I'm not a cuss word. I'm, I'm this and that. And so there, there's this little bit of a power struggle going on. And we've completely lost the whole point. The point was people were trying to raise the issue about equal and fair treatment under the law for, for people of color. And and now it's become this national deal. So I'll say this. Whether you agree or disagree with the method of the protest, the First Amendment of the Constitution, it protects the right for peaceful demonstration. That's called free speech. As long as you're not hurting or endangering somebody or or using hateful rhetoric, you have the right for peaceful peaceful protest. Guys, that's a rudimentary value of a democratic society. We have to value the fact that people are allowed to share their opinion, even if we don't agree with their opinion. Our problem is now, as soon as there's disagreement, we don't just do disagreement very well anymore. Because as soon as there's disagreement, I don't just disagree with you, I hate you. And this, in this last seven to 10 years, disagreement has turned into hate. If you disagree with me, you hate me. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. All you have to do is ask your spouse. <laughs> when we disagree, do you hate me? No, I don't hate you. I love you, but I don't agree with you on that. Disagreement doesn't equal hate. But in the current context, it seems to play that way. So here's, here's where I would say the church needs to be on this. 
And again, this is a nuanced social issue. But here's the deal. The church has to look at something like this and not just decide, I'm gonna hop in on this side or hop in on that side. We have to look at the situation and look at both parties and understand where everybody's coming from and then have a heart that's, that's full of righteousness and justice and a heart that's full of mercy and compassion. So here's what you have to get, is that on both sides of the issue, there are people who are really, really hurting. Now, on the one side, you have gold star families. A gold star family is somebody that's lost a family member, more, more likely a child, in the line of duty in the military. And so what, what does a gold star family see? And you might be a, a gold star person in here today, I don't know. But what do you see when there's somebody who is you know, protesting during the national anthem and you're thinking about your child who has died in the line of military service? There's no way that you see that protest and you take that lightly. You're gonna take that personally. That's gonna feel like a personal affront. That's gonna feel like somebody who is trying to mar the, the, the memory of your loved one who died to protect the very freedoms that we all enjoy. So that's on the one side. Now, on the other side, you've got people in the NFL. Now, the NFL, the, the athletes are 70% African-American, and many of those guys that are successful in, in athletics, let's just say it this way, they weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They've seen all sorts of, of different levels of discrimi discrimination and prejudice and difficulty as they grew up. And, and many of them came out of very challenging environments. And so they know firsthand with their eyes the, 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 the context of, of difficulty and racial tension that is still alive and well and present present in the United States today. And so when they're taking a knee, they're just simply trying to say, hey guys, there's still a problem. Can we not whitewash this issue and act like everything's just okay? And so they're deeply hurting because of the experiences that they've had and family members have had. And then on this other side, they're deeply hurting because of the way that that feels like that's dishonoring of the legacy and the memory of a, of a, a beloved person that served in the military. Now, from the church, you don't just jump in on either one of those sides. You meet that kind of pain with empathy. Yeah. Hear me again. You meet that kind of pain with empathy. You understand that these issues are deep and hurtful and painful for people at the heart level. And what you have to do as a, a representative of Jesus is just get right in there with them and say, share your heart with me. Let me understand what's going on in there with you. And then we pray for that. We speak truth to it. We speak peace to it. We empathize with the, the difficulty and the struggle that the individual is going through and, and we intercede for it. And dear God, we don't post on Facebook about it. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have been really good about not posting on Facebook about it, but there's some other folk that ain't so good about not posting on Facebook about this stuff. And I just, I just can't believe the way that believers on both sides of this issue just, just assail and hurl insults and judgments against people on the other side. 
I, I, was, I was looking at different responses to, to the Take the Knee protest. And, and some of you guys will recognize Ray Lewis. Ray Lewis played for the Baltimore Ravens for years. He's, I, don't, I don't know if he's in the Hall of Fame or if he's going to be, but he is going to be a Hall of Famer if he's not. Is he already in there? Y'all don't know. Y'all only watch football. I do. Ray Lewis, he's well known. So Ray Lewis goes out with the Ravens and they're gonna, several of them are going to take a knee. Well, here's Ray Lewis. He's down like this. And if you watch the video, he's doing this number and he's praying the whole time. He looks like the intercessor that God dropped right in the middle of the fire. It's hilarious. Everybody else got their knee. He's all, I'm like, you go, Ray Lewis. You go. And then there's Benjamin Watson. And he plays in the NFL today. And he made a statement. He said, I, I just don't feel like I can take any because I empathize with the people whose, whose lives are so wrapped up in, 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 in the way that their families have served in the military to protect freedoms. He goes, I just, as a believer, I just want to support and bless those families. So I don't want to show myself as a person that's, that's in, in opposition to them, even if that's not the message. Both of them African-American men. Both of them believers, godly men. Both of them managing it in different ways. But do you know what? I, I saw empathy in both of those men. And I say amen to that. And that's how it's supposed to be, beloved. We're not supposed to be railing at the people that are on the other side of our opinion. We're supposed to be going into the fray with peace in our heart and love in our heart and manifesting empathy and mercy and love. Amen. Amen. All righty, let's get a little lighter now. Let's talk about interracial marriage. So, just might as well get it all done in one, one night. Just get it all done. I don't have to talk about anything hard. It's love of God for the next six months, people. All right. <laughs> uh, so what about interracial marriage? Does it, what does the Bible say about interracial marriage? Well, when you study the history of the way the church in America has handled the issue of interracial marriage, what you find out is that uh, not only has there been loud voices in the church against interracial marriage historically, you find out this, that as late as 1967, there were 16 states that had interracial marriage as a felony. Now, here's the deal. The Bible has no prohibition to interracial marriage. The Bible never says you're not allowed to marry somebody of another culture. That is a completely false uh, thing that has been taught and propagated through the church. It's a a, a deception, and I believe a doctrine of demons, okay? And I'm gonna break it down for you where that came from, where that ideology came from, and how they use that ideology. But I will firstly say this. There is no prohibition to interracial marriage, but there are biblical prohibitions when it relates to marriage. And the the specific one that I wanna deal with is you cannot marry someone who's not a believer. 
That's the most crystal clear prohibition in the scripture. Now you also, you know, there's a, there's a thing against incest. You can't marry a family member. But, but Deuteronomy 7 and 2 Corinthians 6, they're very, very clear on this matter. And this is the one that people really wink at in the church. I was surprised to find out that there's still many in the church that think that interracial marriage is a sin. Meanwhile, they kind of turn the other way when somebody gets married to somebody who's not saved. The Bible is absolutely clear. There's nothing about interracial marriage being a problem, but there's a real problem with being unequally yoked with unbelievers. So look at 2 Corinthians 6, right from the New Testament, right from the teachings of Paul, and he says it just like that. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? Now, I've been in pastoral ministry about 25 years, And over the years, I take note about what it is that causes people to lose their footing in their walk with the Lord, to backslide. And I would say, like, not even close. Like, I mean, most people, when when they're backsliding, there's one issue that causes them to backslide. Probably nine out of 10 times, this is where the issue is. And, and it's not that they're backsliding into false religions and that they're not, you know, nobody's backsliding into Buddhism. <laughs> People tend to backslide because they get hooked up and they get yoked unequally with someone who's not saved in a romantic relationship. It tends to be the number one reason. And I've watched it for 25 years. And I've had so many conversations with people and they'll come to me and they'll say, oh man, I, I want you to, to meet my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I go, oh yeah. They go, oh, they, they love church. I go, oh, they, they love Jesus. And they go, oh, well, they've only come twice. And last week was the first time they've ever been in church. I go, they get saved? They go, well, they, they liked your preaching. <laughs> They, they really like Hillsong's music too. I go, so are they saved? Are they born again? They go, well, almost, almost. And I go, okay, almost, that's fine, but that doesn't work. That, that's, that's horseshoes you're talking about, not salvation. And so they go, well, you know, I'm like sharing the gospel with them. And what they've done at that point is they've become a missionary and they're missionary dating. Missionary dating does not work. And then I go, listen, you don't want to be unequally yoked with that person, you know, because uh, they, they don't know Jesus. And they're, the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. And they go, but, but they're so cute. <laughs> and I say, that very, very cute person is also a son of the devil. <laughs> unless they get born again. So if they get born again, they will be a son of righteousness. But at the current time, Lucifer is their daddy. That's not a family you're trying to marry into. (laughs) And for some reason, people don't listen to me. They start off and church is the date and they end up and going to the club is the date. And man, I've just watched it for years. 
over and over and over where those relationships, when, they, when people are not equally yoked, it is the number one thing that causes people to backslide. If you're single in this room, especially if you're a single female, do not settle. Amen. Don't settle. Just because he's cute and he bought you roses, right? When you were thinking about roses, that's not a sign from God. He's not saved. Once he gets saved, he could be the one, but currently he is a zero. (laughs) Okay? Now we love him, we're believing God for him, but unless that dude gets saved, no, 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 no. Amen. Amen. So where do we get this weird thing on interracial marriage? I just thought I'd take care of that while we're talking about interracial marriage. (laughs) So Deuteronomy 7 has a clear prohibition in it, and the Lord enumerates several different cultures which the children of Israel should not intermarry with. And what happened was this. The eugenicists and the white supremacists in the 1700s went ahead and grabbed those portions of Deuteronomy 7 and they made them a a, a staple teaching in order to keep races separate, in order to keep white people in authority and to keep people of color subjugated. Because if you're crossing the races, we can't figure out who's who. So they said, no, 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 Deuteronomy 7 says you can't marry these people of other cultures, thus intermarriage with other cultures is forbidden. Well, they didn't read the rest of the passage because when you read it, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6, it's clear as a bell. The Lord says, do not intermarry with these cultures because you will end up serving their false gods. The issue was always about being yoked equally in faith and had nothing to do with being yoked across cultures. So if you've got somebody who's a believer and, and it doesn't matter what their, their cultural background is, God will join any two believers together who want to make a lifelong pledge of covenant with one another. And that, that covenantal pledge is not to be entered into lightly. Like you don't just look at them and they like you and you like them and all right, we're going. No, this thing needs to, we got to get a little process in there. Make sure everybody's on the same page. But there is no prohibition across cultures. Amen. And so I'll just add this with another piece of little spice on there. In Numbers 12, what we have is you've got Aaron and Miriam, and they're having an issue with Moses. And the text uses this phrase, because of the Ethiopian woman he married. Okay? Now, the text doesn't give us more than that. It just says, because of the Ethiopian woman he married. And, and so commentators are all over the map on what they think that's about. And I would just say this. It may be, it may be that they did not like her complexion. Because last time I checked, folk from Ethiopia are a little darker than the folk from the Middle East. It's possible. Now, it's also possible that they just thought he should have been marrying more within the tribes of Israel. That's very possible as well. And it's possible that maybe they didn't like the fact that it appears that Moses was on his second marriage with his first wife, Zipporah, apparently passing away. It's possible. But either way, 
the Lord steps into this argument and releases judgment on Aaron and Miriam and Miriam turns leprous right in front of everybody. The Lord affirming the covenant that Moses has made with an Ethiopian. Thus, we see that God has no problem with that intercultural marriage because they were equally yoked. Clear enough? Amen. Okay. Let's come in for a nice easy landing and talk about patriotism. (laughs) You guys put me to work this week, man. So here's the question. What does the Bible say about patriotism? Many believe that Christians are required to have a heightened amount of American patriotism. What exactly does the Bible say? So here's what I did. I went through... And I put a bunch of scriptures together for you that I would like you to reference and read on your own this week so you can see what we're talking about. So firstly, we all have to understand this, that we all in Christ have a common citizenship and a common culture, and that common citizenship and culture supersedes any of our natural citizenships and any of our natural cultures. We are all a part of the kingdom of God and that's where our citizenship is and we are all a part of, a, of, a, of the same culture which is the culture of that kingdom, Amen. okay? We're all new creations in Christ. So we're all a part of the same family, the same culture, and we all have the same citizenship. Now the scripture is absolutely clear that we are to prioritize the expansion of the kingdom of God and the the value of the kingdom of God above every other kingdom there is, including the nation in which we live. So the kingdom should always be our priority, looking for the the furtherance and the expansion of the kingdom and living by the values of the kingdom of God should always be our priority. Now, with that in mind, when it comes to our natural citizenships and the natural governments and authorities that that we live within and and live in subjection to, what does the Bible say? Well, I mention it there in C, uh, D, and E. The, the, The Bible says this, that believers are to be subject or submitted to and honor the earthly governments and the leaders of those governments. That doesn't just include the, the, the president, that includes all the different cabinets and house of representatives and however the government is, is laid out, all the way down to local level, all the way down to magistrates, all the way around to law enforcement. We are to be submitted and we are to honor and we are to respect those governmental offices as offices that have been assigned by God. Now somebody goes, well, man, you know that not everybody in governmental offices are always righteous. Yeah, I know that, and so did Paul. Because Paul was writing to the church at Rome, and Rome was making it a habit of executing Christians publicly. And so he was telling the church at Rome, who was having public executions of Christians, you need to be submitted to the government. That's intense. That's how much we are not citizens of this age and citizens of this place. We are citizens of the kingdom, amen. And so we're to be subject and we're to honor. 
and respect our governmental leaders and those governments. We are further to pray for uh, the, the nation and its leaders. Can you imagine what if believers quit complaining about presidents? What if through the last term, no believers complained about President Obama, but every one of us became his intercessors? And what if in this term, no believers complained about President Trump and we became his intercessors? I'm saying those people would be living, living under a shower of glory. <laughs> Get you know, a couple hundred million intercessors crying out to God on your behalf. You'd have like heavenly portals showing up around you with angels going up and down. Wisdom of heaven all over you. There wouldn't be a demon within miles. But instead, we think airing our opinion about our president on Facebook is a good idea. And we live in disobedience to the scripture. Believers are to pray for their nation and its leaders. Now, the Bible goes on further to say this, that nations who claim the Lord as their God and serve him according to his way will experience his blessing. I love that. So we want to pray for our leaders that we would live a, a quiet and peaceable life like the scripture says. We want to pray for them to have godly wisdom, godly insight, for them to be converted to love Jesus with all, our, all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we want to pray that they would en enact righteous laws and just laws so that we can experience the, the blessing of God on our nation, okay? So patriotism now, that term, it simply means to love one's country. And, and as far as I can see, the Bible doesn't prohibit that. The Bible encourages that, to be honorable, sub, be submitted to, to pray for, and, and to believe for good things for your country. That sounds like you're loving your country. So patriotism, uh, biblically, I think is, is a positive thing. I think it's something that, that Christians can, can definitely engage in and be patriotic. And, and I think it's uh, uh, an awesome thing when Christians really engage in government activities and, and, and public office to, to enact righteous laws and to pray and intercede into, into those, those areas of, of our nation. The only time that patriotism would become a problem is if it supersedes our love for God or if it somehow overrides the value system of the kingdom of God. Amen. And then we would have a problem. So, this is where I think the confusion enters in as it relates to patriotism. What tends to happen is this. Believers, what they will do is they won't separate their spirituality from their politics. Oh, glory. And so I, I don't know about you, but I watched the Democratic National Convention this last time leading up to the election, and I watched the Republican National Convention leading up to this election, because I want to hear what these people are saying. I want to see what they're talking about. I want to see what's going on. I watched a lot of both of those conventions. But what, what really caught my attention was each time they opened with prayer and they closed with prayer. And each one of those political conventions, there was a pastor, a leader, um, I think almost on every night, that said, God, I thank you for our political party, the party of you, God, your party. And I thank you for doing your will in our party, amen. And I thought, man, these, pol these political people, they're, they're interesting folks because uh, they think God's a card carrier in both parties. How does, how does that work? Then I realized, oh, I don't think they actually think that he's in both parties. They actually think he's in their party and not in the other. 
I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then I just stepped back from it for a minute and I went, God, are you a Republican? (laughs) Are you a Democrat? Are you a Libertarian? Green Party? No. He's he's, uh, sovereign, actually. (laughs) He's actually over all, above all, in all, and through all. I love, I love what happened when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua. And the angel of the Lord shows up and Joshua goes, oh good, you're for us, right? For us or for the enemy, who are you for? And the angel of the Lord goes, no. <laughs> no, I'm for God. The question isn't who I'm for, the question is who are you for? And so what happens is there's all sorts of confusion when we mix our politics and our spirituality. And listen, I know because of, your, you know, where you come from, uh, your family, well, you know, where you've been and, and where you're going. I know that there's different people with different political opinions and, and certain people look at certain issues as more important. Others look at other issues as more important. I understand that. Here's the thing we've got to be able to do in the church. We've got to be able to be the crew that can actually talk about politics and still love each other. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And you know what? You can, you can hear something from the other side and recognize there's some truth in that. I may not get along with all of that, but I, there's a few points right there I really got. That really made, that makes a difference to me. And then you go, and I listen to the other side. Well, they got a few things too. And man, there's some things in there that I, that I can get along with. And then you just gotta ask Jesus. Lord, what do you want me to do about this issue when it comes to voting? And you've got to vote for righteousness, vote for justice, and vote for the heart of the Lord the best you understand it, okay? But, but the thing gets really mixed up when, when believers mix their faith with a nationalism. And, and so what happens is this, and we hear rhetoric like this a lot, there's this sort of Christo-nationalism that happens, See, because in Christianity, believers follow the word of God and the culture of the kingdom, uh, and, and every other culture is subservient to the word of God and the culture of the kingdom. But when, when there's this Christo-nationalistic thing going on, what happens is believers will use the Bible as long as it strengthens and furthers the agenda of their political party or of the nation. And therein is a real blurry, blurry area. And so I would just say this, patriotism is a good thing, loving your country is a good thing, being submitted to the kingdom of God is a required thing. And where those two things don't meet, you always have to side with the culture of the kingdom and you've always got to side with your citizenship in heaven. Amen Amen and amen. amen.